Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that contemplates issues related to cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories with David Campbell, including New York limits ride-sharing services such as Uber, Tesla to delist and the 10 millionth Mustang. We talk to Brad Pettit, the Mayor of Fremantle, a local government area of Perth. He has some grand visions for making a local government area, including transport, more livable. We also talk to our expert in historic and classic cars, Paul Morell, about the Hillman Imp and the new MG that is on the market. British name, Chinese manufacturer. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear past programs, podcasts on iTunes or your favourite podcast service or on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Across the world, cities have been deciding how to deal with the explosion of ride-sharing services such as Uber. In many places, there have been demonstrations and protests, as ride-sharing services drastically reduce the value of taxi licences. In some cities, Uber has been banned altogether, and in other places, such as London, their licence has come under immense scrutiny. Now New York has decided to cap the number of ride-sharing vehicles for a 12-month period, while it undertakes a study to consider its environmental and economic impact. The number of vehicles in the city will be capped at its current level of around 100,000, although companies will be allowed to add wheelchair-accessible vehicles during this time. Aside from capping the number of vehicles, the New York proposal also raises the minimum wage of drivers by about 23% on average. Many Uber and yellow cab drivers support the cap, and say they hope the new law will translate into less competition, more customers and higher incomes. It is likely that other cities will follow New York and put a freeze on the growth of Uber and other ride-sharing services, at least temporarily, while they figure out a strategy of handling this growing area of transportation. Elon Musk's Twitter habits have become quite a roller coaster ride with his latest being a surprise announcement that he is considering taking Tesla, the most valuable US automaker, private. With a $70 billion price tag, it would be the largest corporate buyout ever, freeing up Tesla from some investor and media scrutiny in a year when it has had some highly publicised issues. The mechanics of how such a manoeuvre would work, including who would fund it, whether it can happen, and what it would mean for Tesla's current shareholders, remains largely up in the air. The US Securities and Exchange Commission is reportedly probing Musk's tweets and has recently sent subpoenas to Tesla asking for answers. It has been reported that the Tesla board hasn't even considered the issue of delisting the company. And while discussions continue about whether or not Tesla should go private, Chinese car company NIO recently filed plans to go public. The electric startup company hopes to raise $1.8 billion. Not surprisingly, the company plans to trade under the stock exchange code NIO. NIO has just started making deliveries of its first volume manufactured electric vehicle, the seven-seat ES8, 
and expects to make the first deliveries of its second vehicle, the more affordable ES6 sports utility vehicle, in 2019. The company is looking to bring out a sedan called the ET7 in 2020. The popular Ford Territory nameplate has been revived, but instead of being seen on a large Australian-made SUV, it will be worn by a new medium SUV to be sold only in China. The blue oval acts the highly successful Ford Territory, the only SUV ever designed, developed and produced in Australia, in 2016, when it closed its local manufacturing plant. Although Ford has since released the Australian-developed but Thai-built Everest seven-seat off-road SUV, the original Ford Territory's spiritual successor will be the Ford Endura, or the Ford Edge as it is known in other parts of the world. However, unlike the homegrown territory, the Canadian-made Ford Endura will offer just five seats and a four-cylinder diesel powertrain. Now the Ford Territory will return as a new affordable utility that slots between the Echo Sport and the Cougar in the Chinese market early next year. China's Ford Territory will be available with petrol, mild hybrid and even plug-in hybrid powertrains. According to Automotive News, Ford plans to launch more than 50 new vehicles in China by 2025. You know that a motor vehicle is a success when it sells consistently over many years. Recently Ford marked production of its 10 millionth Mustang, a mega threshold that only about 25 nameplates have ever crossed. The Mustang becomes Ford's third model to reach the 10 million sales milestone following the Model T and the F-Series pickup. To celebrate the event, the company invited owners of models from all 54 years of Mustang output to its Michigan plant, where the car has been built since the fifth generation debuted in 2004. But times have changed. The 10 millionth Ford Mustang is a highly developed, high-tech, 460 horsepower, white GT 8-cylinder, 6-speed manual convertible, equipped with driver assist technology. The first Mustang produced in 1964 was the same colour but with a three-speed manual transmission and just 164 horsepower. South Korea's government will tell owners of some BMW cars to keep the vehicles off the road until the German automaker completes safety checks to address a defect after reports of nearly 40 cases of fire this year alone. After announcing the recall of more than 106,000 BMW cars in the country, the Transport Ministry said about 27,000 of them haven't been inspected and has asked regional officials to ban drivers from operating the vehicles that have yet to undergo checks. After videos of the German luxury cars engulfed by flames went viral, BMW said the cause of the fires was a cooler leakage in its exhaust gas recirculation unit, sparking a thermal event in driving mode. The defect also prompted BMW to do a voluntary recall of 323,000 vehicles in Europe. BMW will replace the EGR coolers and modules in the recalled cars covering 42 models. BMW is South Korea's number two imported auto brand after Mercedes-Benz, accounting for 24% of the segment in the first half of this year. And that has been the news. One of the criticisms of the American federal parliament is that a large majority of elected politicians have a background in one area, law. This might make them adept at settling disputes, 
or more particularly winning arguments, but there is a lack of diversity in the skills they have. Canada, on the other hand, has a Minister of Finance who has a financial background, a Minister for Health who is a medical doctor, and many other appropriate experiences. Now, at the local level in Australia, in the port city of Fremantle, just to the northwest of Perth, located at the mouth of the Swan River, the local mayor, Brad Pettit, was previously the Dean of the School of Sustainability at Murdoch University. I met Dr Pettit at a function just prior to the AITPM National Conference. He has some thoughtful ideas about the city. Let's find out as he joins us on the line now. Brad, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Just out of interest, what's your PhD in? Actually, my PhD was in sustainable development, but it was looking actually more at international sustainability and how the role of non-government organisations as they tried to do that had changed over, over preceding decades. I think what we've seen over the last couple of decades is a, a sense of solving some of the big challenges we have you know, in terms of environment, economy, society, actually do require a, a more integrated interdisciplinary kind of approach and that's kind of where the school of sustainability arose actually is actually as a policy institute which is called the institute for originally science and technology policy but ultimately sustainability and technology policy and how we start to address these these big challenges that i think face cities and communities all around the world it could be seen as uh, you know one left-wing side of politics and i guess uh, in the political arena i saw one of uh, the things where your opponent took a very conservative role that might be able to marginalise you, yet you're talking about integration. Is that an important message you've got to get over to your electorate? It is, because um, it's one of those key things, is actually creating livable, sustainable cities is absolutely about, about integration. It's not solving you know, just the environmental issues or the transport issues, but it's also got to solving about where are your jobs kind of issues, where's your affordable housing, all that, I mean, where's your community services, all of those things ultimately intersect. And then you've got to get all of those things working to make your city work. And uh, it can't, it isn't a single kind of... If you could just try and deal with one part of that, then you end up with a pretty lop- lopsided outcome. And that's a great challenge around the art of city making. And when we were talking to Paul Steedley-White, who was at the conference and at the meeting we were at, he mentioned that his local politician had a priority on health and other issues, yet... The point about it, transport was part of that, not another thing altogether. It, in, it was integrated into that particular objective. Absolutely. And when we see that actually how our city works, um, if you, and if you get that right, you actually solve a whole range of issues at once. And to me, that's, I think one of the things that, that excites me is that when, when we make our cities more livable, more walkable, more cyclable and more sustainable, we, they also become healthier places, they become places where community can happen more easily. There's a whole range of great other connections that, that happen around there as well that are kind of unintended positive consequences as a, as a result of those policy changes. A major project that Brad was proud to be part of in his Fremantle area was the White Gum Valley Energy Sharing Trial with work from Western Power and Curtin University. They established a shared energy storage system in a new development area that makes sharing power between neighbours possible through a solar-powered microgrid and battery storage system. When it was proposed, it was expected that it would provide 70% of the energy needs of the new development. 
It was recently stated by Curtin University that in fact the area has become a fully zero carbon development, which means that they are producing not only enough power to run their houses, but also charge their electric vehicles. The system is said to allow any excess electricity to be sold back to retailers. It is so well automated that sharing energy with your neighbours is said to be as easy as lending a cup of sugar or borrowing the lawnmower on the weekend. Another project that Brad saw through was the establishment of a skate park in the middle of the town area. Skate parks are not universally accepted as a desirable local activity, but with a passion for collaboration, he involved young people and many others in the design process, so when it went to council, there were quite a number of people who supported its construction. Not all, but certainly enough to see the project go ahead. The fascinating thing is that because young people were involved, they have a sense of ownership of the project, and council has not had any problems with things such as graffiti or vandalism. It is all part of his collaborative approach, which can be applied to transport and land use development within his area, and of course to much broader opportunities. I wondered how having a background in academia might be helpful to Brad as he moved into the political environment. I asked him this question. The difference between academia and politics. Now, Woodrow Wilson, the 28th President of the United States, had an academic background. I think he was Dean of Law. He studied history and political science. He said that he much preferred being the President of the United States compared to academia, because being president, there was far less politics. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. That's very funny. There's certainly some truth in that. There's nothing like uh, universities for politics, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, at least your politics is very upfront when you're in, when you're in politics. Um, and look, I also prefer being mayor because pretty really... You get to do things, you know. Um, I mean, I, I love ideas. I, 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 I mean, I, I love academia. And I expect to be times in my life when I do go back and, and do some research and writing again and teaching. But the privilege of actually taking what I think is some of the best thinking um, around city making and trying, you know, trying to implement it in, in, the, in the complex world and the complex realities of is fascinating and very, very rewarding. So, uh, yeah, it's been great to have that academic background and to understand some of the issues probably more deeply than many people might get to. But certainly the, there's nothing like actually yeah, having that, that process of implementation. Brad, it's been lovely to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Much appreciated. And that's Dr Brad Pettit, who is the Mayor of Fremantle who has had both an academic background but is, of course, now applying some very broad and long-term principles into his local area. You're listening to Overdrive. In 1963, the Roots Group, which was later taken over by Chrysler, began building a small economy car, the Hillman Imp. It was a competitor to the BMC's Mini. Although the Mini sold 5.3 million cars, the Imp sold about a tenth of that, even a bit less, at about 500,000. It wasn't nearly as successful, yet there is some six degrees of separation. The number of people who in some way have touched on this little car, people more of my vintage, 
It is amazing. It's uh, been uh, incredible. But one who, a person who never owned one but is nonetheless their resident expert in historic and classic cars is a motoring journalist Paul Morell who joins us on the line now. Paul, do you remember the imp around that time? Oh, I remember it very well indeed. It was a classic case of a car that they wanted to take every possible risk with it and give it absolutely no chance of success. It was quite different from the Mini, the Mini front-wheel drive, front-engine. This was the other way around. It was. It was a very brave design. Um, brave, of course, in the sense of, um, yes, Prime Minister. Um, it, was, it was a clever, clever design. But as usual with British cars of that era, they just didn't develop it. I mean, they, they, their, their definition of, of testing a vehicle was to sell it to someone and let the customer be the, uh, the test bed. And the Imp was yet another example of that, unfortunately. A little engine in the back, which had quite some modernness about it, aluminium engine, overhead camshaft, tilted to 45 degrees so as to keep the weight low. And uh, it, the engine actually had an interesting history, I think. Yes, it did. It was uh, Obviously, it was the Cooper Climax, but based on the Cooper Climax engine. And the Cooper Climax engine originally was designed to power up a fire pump. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'd be a bit concerned if the fire pump was as fragile as the imp. I don't think I'd want to trust it to save my house. No, it was uh, a lovely little car. It wasn't quite Volkswagen. It was still water-cooled, although it had trouble with head gaskets and things. It it did take some careful looking after. It did. It was a bit like, remember, we talked about the, the Honda some time ago, hmm. the Honda S600 and S800. It suffered that same sort of problem. It was a an excellent little car, but it needed to be maintained. And I'm afraid in the early 60s, people's idea was you got in, you drove, and you changed the oil occasionally if you thought about it. And the imp just didn't didn't stand up to that sort of treatment. It managed to get a very... The, the, the main part of the body was like a slab of chocolate, very low, and as I say, the engine was tilted 45 degrees. It, it was really quite low, and they sat on top of that a very almost utilitarian windows and roof which had elements of the Pope-mobile about it. And yet it made for a very practical car at the time, while it still had some reasonable hint towards performance because of its setup, because of its a fairly good engine in one sense, and, of course, keeping the weight and that down low on the ground. Yeah, it was a clever design. It, it actually, the back window lifted, lifted out, folded up. So it was sort of, in many ways, it was a, Precursor to the to the hatchbacks we love today, ah. but strange little thing. I mean, some of the more fanciful reviewers at the time said it was a bit like a poor man's nine eleven. Well, it takes a fair stretch of imagination to get that far. <laughs> Extremely but, poor. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was fun to drive, like a nine eleven. It was quite light in the front, obviously because the engine was down the back. Mm. The steering was direct. It was a nice small car, and obviously it was mini sized. Um, they were heaps of fun to throw around until they until they blew up. I had one. I owned one for a short while. A friend followed me and I went round a sweeping left-hand corner. I didn't think I was going too you know, fast. My friend that was following me came out and said, you realise the left wheel was about 16 inches in the air. <laughs> Raised uh, wheels at all sorts of angles. You did actually drive one for a story you did, I believe. I did. I got into it and I had the owner sitting next to me, which is never a particularly good idea. Mm. And I was driving it, what I thought was quite modestly, probably as you thought you were driving yours. And I came into a corner and the last of the demon laid breakers. And I watched him pushing his fire 
firewall out the front as he pushed his feet into the floor, and I realized that I was braking a lot later than he would have. <laughs> and then I remembered why, because the brakes were, I don't know, they were the tiniest drum brakes in history of mankind, and it just doesn't stop. I mean, <laughs> I got it around the corner, but I think we were both a little more cautious after that. They made it in a van, and a fastback was one of the versions. It's had a million names uh, to it as well. It's been called the Hillman GT here in Australia. I think a fairly liberal use of the words or the, the acronym GT, Grand Touring. The Singer Chamois was another name. Yep. And the Sunbeam Stiletto, that was the fastback version. That was the fastback version. Well, just as a matter of interest, when they were developing the car early on, the imp prototype was actually called the Slug. Is that right? <laughs> yes. And then they, they changed the official code name was Apex, but it was known as the Slug, which is sort of probably an indication of how much hope they held out for it. In fact, it was interesting that uh, the uh, the car was actually built in uh, in Scotland. Oh, okay. In Glasgow, at Linwood near Glasgow. And one of the problems, one of the reasons was obviously a bit like the um, DeLorean, it was to try and improve the employment around that area. Okay. So they said, well, let's build a factory. You have to build your factory here in Glasgow which obviously would have increased delivery costs and transport costs and all the rest of it. But then to compound the problem, when they were going to launch the car, the designers and the, and the engineers said, oh, we need six more months. We re really need to develop this car a bit more before we launch it. And, but, of course, they'd already booked the Duke of Edinburgh to open the factory, and that could not be changed. So they opened the factory and released the car, and much to their regret, it was... Uh, Underdone, shall we say. He had clever things, diaphragm, spring, clutch, a transaxle in the back, an automatic choke, and I think it had synchromesh on four, all four manual gears, which uh, Izzy Gonis, the guy who designed the Mini, thought was impossible. Well, interesting time. Thank you, uh, Paul. Let's uh, hang on the line. We'll do some uh, talking a little. We'll catch up with you about the MGs that are now onto the being sold onto the market, but uh, we'll do that in a, after the break. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, here we are back again, and we'll talk to Paul Morell. And uh, I've just been to the launch of the MG3, a light car, which means that it's the second smallest in category, not in the real little compact sort of size, but uh, certainly smaller than, say, a Corolla. It's uh, just, just launched onto the market. Now, Paul, can MG come back? What did MG mean to you in your growing up? Well, it meant cars I couldn't afford, basically. Oh. Well, I was there with that out of my price range. That's uh, damned by faint praise, is it? That's me. Yeah, and there, are also, there are also people, David, who suggest I'm yet to grow up, so I'll take you to task over that as well. It's an interesting one, isn't it? To try and revive that brand name. Again, it's a generational thing. I'm not too sure that uh, many current buyers have fond or indeed any memories of MG as it was originally. Mm. It's a bit of a case, I guess, of... It's a bit of a case of bolting a, a name onto a car which really doesn't have any of the heritage or any of the history or any of the any of the appeal of the original. I mean, sorry, sorry, MG, but I'm, hmm. there's not much MG-ness about it. Let's put it that way. By the way, it's the Chinese SIAC uh, car company that now owns the brand name and building them from the Asian region. They do go out into country areas and they claim that in the sort of country-type rural areas that they do have some reasonable response, all their effort isn't just in the cities. I know it's difficult, and I, I, 
I hesitate to say these things about them, but I just don't understand by slapping on that octagon badge how they believe it's going to give them too much more credibility. I mean, you're right. I noticed, I'm just looking at their dealer list here. They've got dealers all over the place. I mean, Tugra and Kedron in Queensland and Wodonga and, I mean, all sorts of places. I don't see too many. Yeah, I mean, they're they're obviously pushing out into the the country areas and good, good luck to them too. It's going to be difficult. And uh, you were at the launch. I'm just wondering, I mean, have they, have they addressed their sort of fit and finish, you know, trim quality and all that sort of thing yet? Or are they still, unfortunately, lagging behind the, the standards we all expect? I think they're getting ahead, although they've done what the Japanese did because SAAC has a number of things. It produces the UTE, the LTV, wasn't it? And the L stands for Leyland, that they bought that mm-hmm. company out. And uh, LDV, isn't it? LDV. And now they've they've bought the sort of British name. I asked them if they were going to build a car and call it the Cedric. (laughs) That sort of Japanese thing of going back to that sort of plum Britishness that they wanted to, to, to achieve. I think they have got the quality looks better. There's no question of that. It's still an interesting modestly uh, performing you know, a car with 82 kilowatts and a four-speed automatic gearbox, seven-year warranty. Ah. Learning from Kia what that yep. might be their advantage to. But, of course, in our day, they were sports cars mainly. They were. They were, and there's no, there's no, no sporting pretension in their current range. No, but they want to achieve that eventually. But if you watch some of those classic British period pieces, uh, what's the one, Father Brown or that, the policemen yeah. often drive an MG saloon. Yes, of course. Yeah, the uh, magnet, as it was. Yes, yes, the magnet. And, uh, a more rounded, uh, I thought, not bad-looking car for the times. It was a lovely car, and that was that was very closely related to the Wolseley 444, um, designed by Jonathan Palmer, and it was a, it was a really conservative but very nice design. You could buy it as a Worsley, you could buy it as a, a, an MG, and I think there were a couple of others in that in that family as well. The early early days of badge engineering. Hmm. Even then, it didn't work particularly well because the MG enthusiasts, even in the 50s, sneered at anything that had a roof or <sighs> wind-up windows. <laughs> and I think the sedans didn't leak through the roof, so, I mean, it's... <laughs> it couldn't be a real MG. Paul, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. And that's Paul Morell, and we were talking about the MG, and earlier we had been talking about the Hillman Imp. Ah, the memories of our youth. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Paul Morell, Dr. Brad Pettit, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>